I would encourage anyone that's listening to this, uh, if you're a newcomer, even if you're not a newcomer, you think you're undervalued right now. Use the concept of reverse engineering. Basically, look up people that you want to be in the future or your own vision of yourself. Uh, use the power of LinkedIn to look up those folks and then see what qualifications they have. See what volunteer opportunities they're involved in. Try to model those. That was Haider Hassan, the CEO of Immigrant Services Calgary, our guest on this episode. Haider immigrated to Canada as a teenager with his family just before the turn of the new millennium from his birth country of Pakistan. On this episode, he recounts memories of his childhood, the struggles, the frustrations, many of the accomplishments, and you know that hope for a better future which propelled his family to pack up and head for Canada. Today, Haider holds the top job at Immigrant Services Calgary, but not without the challenges newcomers face trying to settle in a new country. He shares many of those challenges and how he navigated them, and most notably, how various individuals took a chance on him. This episode, like all our previous episodes, is loaded with so much wisdom that I'm sure will resonate with you. And just to remind you, if you haven't listened to our previous episodes, I encourage you to hit the play button whenever you get a chance, and I'm sure you will love them. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Hider, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Hider, you may not know because it was a big audience in 2019. I was um, a consultant then at Deloitte. And you gave the keynote speech at the all hands session we had in 2019. And you told your story. Either at that moment, a light bulb went off in my head. I'm like, oh my goodness, what a story. Is there a way that everyone who intends to move to a new country, an immigrant, can hear this story that Haider just said? And that was the moment I thought about starting this podcast. Wow. I'm humbled by, by those comments. And, you know, I think I was reflecting a lot on uh, whether to express that story in front of, you know, people who have technical leadership and highly quantitative folks. But I think the, the leader in your team encouraged me to be vulnerable. And, and I think my story, and I'm humbled that you said that, I think that my story is probably the story of most newcomers. And, and I think some of them are actually even uh, far worse than what I experienced, but uh, but yeah, I'm just happy that you you took something out of it, and now you're paying it forward, and you're providing leadership so that uh, we can at least learn from these stories and not repeat the obstacles that we may have experienced. Well, thanks, Hada. Thanks for being here. Now let's dive into the podcast. Sure. And how I like to start is take my guests back to the very beginning, the childhood, and I ask the mm -hmm. question. Where were you born? Yes, I was born in a small town in Pakistan, in Poita, surrounded by mountains. In fact, it actually looks like Calgary. It's a city surrounded by mountains in the, the valley. Wow. The province is Balochistan that borders uh, Iran and Afghanistan. The reason I was born there because my grandpa uh, was a, uh, I would call him a servant leader. And I'll get into that on the impact that he had on us. 
And that was his hometown. So I was born there, but I lived my, the rest of my life in a port city in the Indian Ocean, Karachi. Mm, fantastic. Wow. You know what? Unpack your childhood a bit for us. Let's understand, you know, some of the growing up, some of the experiences you had and some of the memories you still remember. Yeah, I think there's two two important aspects to my childhood. One is my family, uh, which is my my parents, my mom and dad, my younger brother, who's three years younger than I am, and my sister, who's 10 years younger. And the other part of my childhood, which is very memorable, is uh, the role that my maternal grandparents played in my journey. And um, what it looked like was my my father had come from a very wealthy family. His father had passed away when he was only in high school. And when he passed away, uh, the wealth uh, got decimated as well. Mm. And so he went from, you know, living a very uh, luxurious lifestyle to literally being homeless overnight. Oh, wow. The reason I'm mentioning that is because I didn't know that side of my family. But because of that, my, my father was the only educated person on his side of the family and he completed his engineering degree mm. so my grandpa had passed away he was in uh, involved in business and he, he was also involved in the political sphere okay and uh, but that experience of my dad going from literally a mansion to homeless and then teaching kids uh, math he was really good at math and he had a, this motorcycle that would always break down and he always tells us he used to eat one egg a day to survive through university Wow. Uh, so the, the value of merit, I still remember this, the value of meritocracy was embedded in us as we were going, growing up there. My mother was also a trailblazer. She was, she was one of the first female graduates in, in law school. Wow. Her and her sister. And they were published in papers for that. And, you know, my grandpa got a lot of uh, comments from society, as you can imagine. He was the, actually leading diversity, equity, inclusion in those times. This is like, you know, three, four decades ago. Back in the day, where it wasn't even a topic for conversation. Exactly. So, so my grandparents provided a, a really good um, uh, playbook for, for us to li- live life. And uh, my mother, when she graduated from law school, she decided to spend time with us, homeschooling us. Even though we went to school as well, she just wanted to invest in our education. Mm. And my dad, he worked in uh, as a metallurgical engineer. Later on in his life, he created a lot of uh, plants in uh, Finland, China, Venezuela, the U.S. Uh, so he was he was really good in his craft. Uh, but when he went into government, he was one of the highest ranking um, engineering officers. Um, he didn't believe in taking bribes. Mm. So we lived hand to mouth with all these benefits, which was really interesting. I remember wearing like maybe like two or three shirts growing up in one or two years, because we knew that all the money was going towards our education. And in Pakistan, there's a two tier system. There's a government schooling system. And there's a private school system, which is based on the English system of O levels, ordinary levels and A levels. I see. So in order to pursue the O and A levels, uh, you do have to pay for private school to achieve that. And it was my parents' dream to do that. Okay. But because he wasn't taking bribes, uh, we literally all the cash flow was going towards our my education and my brother's education. And my sister was born hers. You did mention your grandfather being a servant leader. Uh, what did you mean by that? It would be interesting to know. So again, very fortunate. So my grand, my maternal grandpa, his dad, uh, he came from a very poor family. 
but he was a visionary. So he moved the family from a village to the big city to explore possibilities for the kids. Mm. And so my grandpa took that to heart. And in a very low, um, in a poor neighborhood, he would go outside to study under the street lamps. So as we were growing up, my parents and my family members would always talk about my grandpa studying under the street lamp when we were not doing our homework. Mm. Um, and I think that set the bar really high. Wow. So my um, maternal grandpa, he then enrolled in the police services. He was one of the most junior. Uh, they would call him Sipai. That's an Urdu word. And the equivalent to that is basically like the person who is like the lowest that does the grunt work. So that was his role. Okay. But from there, fast forward, he became the deputy inspector general of police. Goodness. Wow. In a major city like Karachi. And last time when we were there, we saw the shield. So every time uh, a senior police officer, uh, when they have tenure, they, they, they ingrain your name on this shield. Okay. And, the, and I saw my grandpa's name there. And then after that, he retired and uh, he became a senator. So he went into the Senate. And he became the deputy chairman of the Senate as well in Pakistan. And as we were growing up, visiting him in the summers, that was our family gathering. He would take us to parliament. So I saw my grandpa from the stands moderating debate with all these intellectuals. Impressive. What's interesting about my grandpa is that he didn't have the opportunity to get a degree. Okay. So all of his education was basically self-taught. He could speak multiple languages. I remember when we were going to his house, I would take these calls from prominent leaders in the community. And they were asking for my grandpa and for his advice on things, wow. on how to solve conflict, on how to progress. And so he was involved and his service was for the community. Wow. He died a poor man. And the reason why I'm saying that is because if you're in those prominent roles in society like that, probably you may get access to some, some wealth, but he had nothing in his name. And the last story that you just made me think of was we knew that he was going to pass away. So we took a trip. I believe this was in 2011 era. And um, all of us went, all the family members just on a tour of Pakistan to see what life was like um, because we had immigrated in 1999. Okay. So it had been 10, 11 years. I remember sitting down with my grandpa, with my brother, and we were really going to ask him about his journey and his best practices and how he got all of his accolades. And my grandpa was very humble. He, he never told anyone what he did. Wow. So that's the one thing I think to be cautious of, because I wish he had told us some of those stories so that we could actually carry them forward. Mm. Now, all the stories that I know of him are from third party oh, leaders. Oh, I see. Actually, I have one for you from Calgary that happened just recently. Okay. And I'll get to that after this one. Okay. So we spent time with our grandpa asking him, grandpa, how did you achieve all these things? And at that time, I was a believer that if, if you want something so bad, you know, the universe cons conspires to make it happen. There's, you know, some spirituality in there. There's a little bit of hard work. Mm. There's a little bit of that, you know, work on your skills, be the best, and then you'll get noticed. And meritocracy again under that. But anytime you would ask grandpa about his advice, he would turn it on you. You would start asking about your story. Mm. He, would, he would try to not talk about himself at all. But my brother and I were just adamant that we had to get the story out. So I asked him, I said, grandpa, okay, fine. I know you're not going to talk about yourself, but if you had a time machine and if I took you back to your days when you were like the junior officer in the police services, like what would you change about your life? 
And his response was he wouldn't change a thing. Wow. And so we both chuckled and we said, did you just become the senator and deputy chairman and, and deputy inspector general and all these accolades just by fluke? Like you never envisioned that. And his answer is the one that is ingrained in me and I'll never forget it. And he said, yes. And I said, what's the, what's the reason for that? And he said, because I lived in the service of people. Hmm. Hmm. And I'll continue to live in the service of people again and again. So it's interesting that I'm part of the Rotary community. And the tagline, why I'm attracted to that is, is called basically the motto is service above self. Wow. Th- this is impressive. So Haider, you have community service running in your family. So I think for you, it's probably not a surprise that you, <laughs> <laughs> you, you went from the banking industry, you right. know, and now you're in nonprofit and community service, you know, serving yeah. the community. There was a time to now leave Pakistan, right? That decision to move. So what, what really uh, you know, drove that decision to move out of Pakistan for your parents and, and come to Canada? Yeah, it goes back to the financial constraints. And I remember when my father was, the, he was leading the copper and gold mine project and he was the chief engineer. And um, he was, he faced a lot of moral leadership challenges because some higher powers wanted him to do something that was not in his value set. Mm. I think out of frustration, he said that he he knew that he would never be able to take up on those uh, situations. So uh, from a financial perspective, he also knew that he had just enough cash flow to support maybe one or two maximum children mm. uh, to go to university. And we were banking on scholarships, by the way. And he told us straight up, he said, this is all I have. Here's the envelope. And, uh, you know, and, and you have to make it on merit. Wow. In fact, he changed his last name as well, because the Pakistani culture, there's a lot of emphasis on your last name. Okay. Because they like to understand your heritage. And it starts from your great grandpa, because they want to know which family you're part of. I see. I, I, could, I think it's a kind of like a privileged situation. So he changed his last name, removed his grandpa's name so that he could make it on his own own. And I carry the same last name today, Hassan. Wow. In fact, my name would have been Mir Haider Hassan Khan, but he moved those two. So based on those things, uh, one of his colleagues was applying to be uh, to, to Canada, and then he just put his name in the hat. And uh, it's interesting, his colleague didn't get the call, but my parents got the call from Turkey. And I still remember that because they left me behind in charge of my two siblings and <laughs> went to Turkey to give the interview. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So that's what triggered it because I think they wanted the kids to grow up in a culture where merit prevailed, where you, we could practice our leadership without getting exposed to dealing with corruption. Mm. Mm. And, you know, being from... Um, Nigeria myself, I totally relate with your story. You know, it's so difficult to to be upright, especially when you hold certain positions of influence, right? And not be be influenced to things like bribery and, and all that. So I, I totally um understand. But how's how's that decision for you as a young man when your parents told you, okay, hey, I think we're moving to Canada? What did that do for you? And how did you take it? You know, there was a time I remember. As I was reflecting on our chat today, I was going down memory lane and I remember praying 
at that time really hard and almost crying that, please, God, take us out of this country mm. because we know we're not going to be able to make it. There's no way that my brother Zain would be successful or Maha because we were just not, we didn't have the cash flow to support anything. Mm. So I think, I think uh, when the news came, we knew that this was our chance to prove that we could, we could do it. And we could also carry the legacy. I guess I never thought of it like that until you mentioned it right now that community service is ingrained in our, in my family. Yeah. But, but that came afterwards, but at that time it was just survival. Honestly, just that give us a chance to prove ourselves and we'll do anything at all possible to ensure that our family has a better life. Mm, okay. And so in 1999, you and your family got on a plane and yeah, you were in Canada. Where did you touch down in Canada? Was that Toronto or? Toronto, yes. The go-to place, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, right? Yeah. Yes, we arrived in Toronto in 1999, right after a big storm. Thankfully, okay. we didn't have to experience that. Lived with my, one of my, now my paternal grandpa, because he was heavily involved in business. The only other person I was exposed to on that side, because my dad always kept us away from some of those uh, folks on that side of the family, because mm. uh, he, the, the values were completely misaligned. I see. But there was a successful um, family friend in an area called Richmond Hill in Toronto, which is a high net worth area. So. He was kind enough to host us for almost one month. Okay. So that's where we lived. And then we found a, a home in, in this town called Etobicoke. It's basically north of Toronto. Mm. And uh, we lived with someone with a, a grandmother who was basically renting her home. She lived in the basement and she was renting the top floor. Okay. But um, what happened was that as soon as we got settled there, my dad had to finish up his assignment in the home country. So we had a dilemma. Should he now take a chance on getting a job here or should he just leave that assignment? And this is where the challenges started coming in because people started saying to my dad, yeah, there's no way you can be an engineer here. Hmm. You have to do a survival job. So people here at the time were telling him that. That's right. That's where the systemic barriers started coming in. We were crushed. Actually, I was reflecting back on that. How is it? that a person of his caliber has set up factories in Finland, China, in the US, and he could not be an engineer here. It's just shocking. The um, system had so many barriers that it was just difficult. So he didn't have the Canadian experience. He didn't have the quote unquote Canadian experience. And so he had to go back. And this is a powerful moment I was reflecting on as well. I was 15 years old at that time, mm. brand new in Canada, like four or five weeks. We're dropping him back to the airport and my mom is wow. there. I'm there. My brother is there and my sister who was in grade one at that time. And my dad gave my mom, I think it was $3,000 or $5,000, something like that. And said, here's the money. This is all I have. See if you guys can make it. And if you can't, then we'll just go back and no worries. So, and then my dad left. And that, in that moment, I realized that I could not, no longer be a 15-year-old teenager. Mm. I had to become something more than that to ensure the survival of my family. So again, the same prayer that I had, now actually there was a chance that was in front of me. I didn't want to lose that chance because I wanted to make sure that my family was able to thrive here. 
my goodness. So you left one dilemma and now you're faced with a different dilemma, right? right? Even though there seemed like there were opportunities now in this country, but you still knew that you had to fight for survival in Canada. You got it. And thanks to my uncles, my two of my uncles, maternal uncles, they had won scholarships from Pakistan to study engineering in the States. Okay. So fortunately, I, I saw them before we were coming to Canada and they coached me. They said, Hider, over there, no ego. Any job will do, just do it because you have to step up. This is your chance to make it big. And not many people get that chance. So I had in back, that in the back of my mind. I had my grandpa's leadership in the back of my mind. And so on the next day, actually, even that night, I started um, going through the newspapers, local newspapers. And remember the Etobicoke Guardian came to mind uh, right now as we were talking. And there was an ad in there that said, there's a new Harvey's being built. And Harvey's is a, is a burger joint. Yep. 15 minute walk away from where we were living in Etobicoke. Okay. And they had an open house to, to hire people. And I just knew that we, I had to get that job ASAP. So I enrolled in high school. Uh, by the way, they made me do the English test. That's another systemic challenge. Mm. Uh, thanks to my mom's homeschooling, my English level was uh, pretty high. I mean, he was teaching us about Wordsworth and, and philosophers in grade six, seven, eight, bet, you know, <laughs> so writing wow. were also good. But the guidance counselor made me do an English test. So I was writing an essay and I remember her snatching the paper away from me because as if she couldn't believe that I could write English. Oh, my goodness. And thankfully, I was put in the regular curriculum. Most of my friends that were newcomers who had thick accents, they were put in ESL, English as a second language. Now, nothing wrong with that. But then you have cultural issues of bullying, ESL kids, you get labeled. Oh, wow. And for university admissions now, you have to do extra courses to prove that you can actually go through a curriculum, which is English. So anyway, so did that piece of it. Wow. I called the Harvey's folks and got myself a job interview with them. And then I called them again and I said, hold on, actually, mom, I think both of us can do this job because we have to do it based on my calculations. The 3000 or 5,000 is only going to last us two or three months of rent. So we need both of us to work, you know, 15 to 20 hours a week. And at that time, the minimum wage, I remember that for a 15 year old, that was $6 and 45 cents. Wow. Okay. My mother had $6 and 80 cents. So we go to the interview and we see a lot of people competing for those jobs. And I couldn't believe it. Oh, my goodness. A lot of immigrants were there. <laughs> and it was a high competition. But I remember when we got that job, my mom and I worked together in shifts. Um, I, was, I would work from five to nine after school. I had this bicycle. Mm. So I would rush to school and from school to Harvey's and then you know, my mom was working at the front. I was working at the back. I was a fry boy. And then they made me the head chef, I guess. That's what it's called, which is grill. I was doing grilling. Wow. Then the hope started to come in because cash flow was coming in. Okay. But then I, I just had these weird moments where, you know, uh, some managers would come and ask my mom to clean the toilet and, and kind of use a tone, which I, you know, because using my mom, right? How could you talk to my mom like that? Yeah. And I remember like yes. taking the mop away from her a couple of times and just cleaning the washroom myself and getting in trouble for that. What's interesting about those times is that we were together. Mm. You also made me think about the paychecks. For the next three years, all my paychecks went into this drawer. I didn't spend a dime on anything else because I knew it was for survival of the household. 
Wow. Wait, wait. You were a 15-year-old kid at the time. 15-year-old kid. That's right. Because that moment at the airport when we were dropping our dad back, because the thing is, if I, if I didn't work for the family to sustain the finances, how would we have made it? It was a very logical thing, right? And I didn't see, see it any differently. Wait, when all the 15-year-old kids were out playing video game, you know, doing... <laughs> You were already taking I, responsibility and all, and you know, calculating how much you needed to survive as a family. That's right. That's right. You made me think about that for sure. I was going through that. Another moment that I remember that you just made me think of was we were at the flea market, and which is almost like the farmer's market. Yeah. And uh, they had these soccer signups going on. And I, I still remember, I think it was like $100 or $200 to register for that. Um, I was really good at sports as well. And um, soccer was my, was my game. And I remember in my suitcase from Karachi, I had packed in my cleats, okay. my soccer. Okay. I was hoping to play soccer here. And uh, I looked at the pricing and I still remember like the coach looking at me and, and I was comparing. I said, hmm. $100 here. And I said, what is the time commitment coach? And he said, well, that's like five to 10 hours a week. So I had to choose between five to 10 hours a week of soccer or making sure that my family was, was well settled. And I chose the latter, of course, wow. but you're right. Like my friends were playing games and I was always rushing from, from school to work to everyone knew me that I was at Harvey's. Hmm. I was a Harvey's guy. You know, I, I can't, Imagine what that experience would have, you know, done to your work ethic leading immigrant services, Calgary, and how that informs how you make decisions today. You went on from high school and then you went to University of Waterloo to study, right? Could you... Talk to us about that transition, you know, why you chose University of Waterloo, why you chose what you studied sure. and how the experience you had, you know, working at Harvest and how your family trying to settle in, in Canada, how that's really informed that decision. You know, the reason why I chose Waterloo was based on the, the dream again from grandpa and uh, my mom, my dad, that we did this for your education. Hmm. So it wasn't an intelligent decision. We just looked at the rankings. <laughs> what are the top university and the hardest university to get in? It was Waterloo at that time. And tough school, but the, you know, the, I met the most wonderful friends and professors there that taught us on how to make the impossible possible. Mm. So that was sort of the bar that we wanted to set. And the other thing was the whole transition from high school to university was a big one because here I was supporting the cash flow needs. Yep. My dad did come back and then he started struggling. So he was working in a chemical plant, uh, making basically chemicals. Okay. That's, that was his job. So he finally found something, but it was a little bit above minimum wage. It was just enough to pay the rent and pay for the food. And again, no excess cash flow or anything else. Mm. So we didn't have a car for the longest time because of that reason. So I commuted through bicycle. My dad, at bicycle and we were again saving money mm. to achieve that you know kind of lifestyle so the other reason was that since i had not experienced a lot of those situations that kids would normally experience at that level sports and parties and 
uh, sleepovers and just things that you would normally do. Mm. I said to myself that, okay, Waterloo is almost an hour and a half away from GTA. I could live that life now and enjoy my first year university in residence. But then the first semester, because of the the uh, the struggles that my parents went through, their marriage was in jeopardy. Mm. And um, I remember my mom calling me in, in my first semester saying, your dad has left the home. Mm. And again, I had a choice. Ignore that and pursue the my own interests and education. Choice number two, convert my degree into a part-time degree, take a job in Toronto, and, and then also support the family. So unfortunately, we had to choose again, a second choice. Oh, Not wow. saying I didn't enjoy my university life. It was great. I met a lot of friends. We, we did a lot of amazing things together. But then the focus was again, family, family and also settling them. Thankfully, I got into finance. I got into head office at, at a big bank. And uh, my first job in the head office was in collections. Okay. So I was the guy calling people when they were late on their bills and mortgages. Okay. And uh, they were yelling at me and, and swearing at me. So, <laughs> and, and I think I exceeded expectations in that job because I think because of the mindset of this whole experience, because um, I guess looking back, the obstacle was always a way forward. We were never afraid of it. And one thing as well, with our entire family, we don't give up. Mm. Once, once we latch onto something, we will continue to have grit to pursue that. Beauty, beauty. And some of these traits are not something that forms overnight. This is what we call character, right? Exactly. Character is built over time, over experiences. And for you, just sharing the experience of your grandfather and your father, you could see the trend of how perseverance and, you know, integrity and honesty builds character over the years. And for you, it's clear every single time you've had to make a choice, you've always chosen your family. And that is character over selfishness. I think, I think there's some magic in that for sure, because when you get exposed to opportunities, you know, a lot of people will say, well, I learned about this aspect in this book and <laughs> you know, this theory. And, you know, when you ex- start researching, you may fall into the trap of that. But theory is just a theory if you don't apply it. That's right. And I think if you look at all these theories, in fact, your Deloitte um, conference, I was just recalling uh, the leader uh, for, for your region there, he was talking about grit from Angela Duckworth. That's right. And now we have research on what creates that kind of, kind of uh, resilience. But you're right, it's character building. And I think uh, the more you get exposed to the ups and downs of life, um, and my grandpa, again, I'm sorry to quote him a lot today, but you know, he, he would say, when you're in leadership and you're trying to resolve things, you have to negotiate with their egos. Mm, mm. <laughs> because who in this world likes to receive feedback? You know, we always, if you look at our body language, we just close up every time there's feedback because that's right. Um, if everyone was self-aware at that level, we'll all be self-actualized human beings. There'll be no wars in this world. We'll all be singing, dancing. Just <laughs> <laughs> I, totally, I totally agree. But I think he, he taught me the value of um, ensuring that, that you don't lose sight of your self-awareness. Hmm. And, um, and when you do that, people will call you out. People will say they'll challenge your integrity. 
they will say to you things that, well, we, I question your integrity or I'm questioning your values. But if you don't have your internal compass pointing north, no one else can do that for you. And I think uh, I'm just reflecting on what you just said, said about character that builds strong moral leadership practice for all leaders out there. Mm. Because in dark times, because leadership, as you know, it's, it's an interesting journey, not for everyone. It's very lonely. You have to do it for the right reasons. You have to make the tough calls that most people are not willing to make. That's right. But it's those character building moments that carry you through in those dark times. Now, this is interesting, right? You start in financial services at CIBC, right? You started as a credit counselor. And now you go from there all the way to become head of wealth management at First Calgary Financial. How did that happen? That's right. And uh, it's an amazing journey. One of my mentors used to say, um, you went from in banking, they call it the cradle to the grave. I know it's a really crude way to describe the cycle of accounts. But uh, the, the cradle is where you create account or origination or sales okay. or product development. And the grave is when that account goes into closing mode or written off or it's in bad debt. Right? Mm. So I started off on this side of the equation and then moved towards the other origination side. And I strongly believe I'm here because of those leaders Um and hopefully Faith is listening to this podcast. She was one of the greatest leaders I have met in CIBC. Mm. One of the first African leaders in wow. the department. Wow. I don't remember the era anymore. I think it was 2004, 5, 6 era. And she took a chance on me. And she, she said that I had a lot of potential. The reason why I think I became the head of wealth or had all these opportunities was because she was training me not to get hooked on negative feedback. Mm. And she taught me that these folks that you're calling, of course, you're protecting the risk for the bank and there's a technical aspect of my job. But she said, you are here to make a difference, aren't you? I said, of course I am. She said, I see that, so go out and help them. But I would say to her, Faith, but how can I help someone who's behind on payments? I'm the bank calling them. <laughs> you have to protect the risk, right? Mm. She said, yes, you can do that by being the hider that I see. And in fact, that's what, that's what started happening. Four or five months down the road, people would get at me and I would not get hurt. And I started developing compassion for those people, mm. practicing compassion and uh, practicing grit, practicing patience. And I started getting inbound calls. I was the only credit counselor on the floor that would get inbound calls and people actually made their payments. They would just call me to say, look, Hunter, thanks so much for helping out and listening to my story. Just want to let you know I'm back on track. Here's what I've done. So I got an exceeds expectation rating because I was exposed to that kind of environment mm. and because I've got a strong leader that was backing me up, unleashing my potential. Wow. So long story short, a lot of leaders along the journey started taking a chance on me. So um, I spent a few years there. Then Anuj Bora, I think today is the head of one of the big banks and their risk departments or collections department he took a chance on me he interviewed me actually in the in the next position which was called relationship manager okay and the idea was to do vendor management on behalf of the bank okay i was still doing university part-time and i remember here i haven't shared this publicly before but i think you're creating the space for me to share this but i had one suit in my closet mm. 
And the suit that I had dry cleaned, unfortunately, it had a hole in the pant. Oh, yeah. And I hear I was supposed to meet Anuj Vora, who was the director of the department. So my entire focus was to keep my hand on my on my on my thigh so he wouldn't see my hole. Wow. And he was asking me questions. And I still remember his question. He said to me, if I gave you a few million dollars to invest in this department, what would you invest it on? So I'm trying to protect the hole <laughs> and answering that too. And I think I said something to the tune of that I would invest it on people. Mm. And I talked about attrition rates and all this kind of stuff. So, so I was one of the youngest, again, relationship managers. And then I got peer mentors. If Sonia Walton is listening to this call. Uh, she was a great leader from Jamaica. Who mm. um, me and said to me that she saw that in 10 years, I would be the head of uh, this department, that department, and that I should continue to push myself. So multiple leaders helped me in the journey. Because what I want to share with you is that, yes, we focus a lot on technical achievements in our careers. Yes, you can get the degrees and the designations and pursue those so you can become world-class. But at the end of the day, it's a human being taking a chance on you. Wow. Profound. My goodness. So people have to take chances on other people. And you know our mutual friend, Charles Osuji, who was on the show? Fantastic leader in the city. Great, great guy, right? And he said, as he said, exactly the same thing you just said. He said, oh, really? yes, he said, um, Mr. Jim Smith saw him, you know, uh, uh, an immigrant from Nigeria who didn't study in Canada, went to a different law school, but he took a chance on him. And you, you and I know how Charles is contributing to the, to yes. the society oh, today. Actually, one of the Immigrants of Distinction Award winners from last year. That's correct. Yes. Yes. So I don't know if, you know, people who are listening, if people who are in, you know, in a position to actually take a chance on new immigrants and you're listening to this conversation between Haider and myself, I would say do it, right? If you see someone you think you can, you can encourage, go ahead and take that chance. And you, you never know, you might be producing the likes of Haider tomorrow. No, that's humbling, actually, because, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be here without that. And if you fast forward, when I, um, in National Bank, there was a leader, her name is Samira Malik. Again, um, she gave me a chance to be on a turnaround team um, at National Bank. That was amazing experience. I never touched sales before. I remember the first few calls, I was procrastinating. My hands were shaking as I was calling advisors. Um, all the way to uh, coaches who called me out when I wasn't doing my, my best. Mm. People like Hanny Tavel, who's the vice president now at National Bank. So uh, thanks to him, he, he, he talked about where I wasn't organized in my practice. And I've worked on that craft. Uh, and then I attained multiple designations. I, I entered a competition where I placed second in the globe for wow. financial planners. So wow. it's, it's basically all these things because you have this imposter syndrome. Um, you know, and you have to, again, goes back to what you were saying before the character building because those moments harvey's moment the credit counselor when you've done that basically you can manage your ego mm. and no matter how high you go uh, you as my grandpa used to say is a cliche saying now right that uh, don't forget where you come from i never understood that until you know i elevated to these some of these levels but here's another one for you um this is now an alberta success story a leadership practice 
So I come here and Samson Lau, um, he's at CIBC. He took a chance on me again. He's, in fact, he, when we went through the interview, talk about ego booster kind of tactics. He said to me, he stopped the interview hmm. and said, I'm going to pause this for a second. And I was shocked. And there was another leader in the room as well. And uh, I said, what's wrong? And he said, are you sure you're here for the right interview? Okay. And I, I, I learned at that point never to make an assumption. So I asked a follow-up question. I said, oh, why would you ask me that? I'm confused. He, and he said to me, he's like, the answers that you're giving me are for a job that is much higher wow. than what you're applying for. Wow. Never forgot that. I mean, he did take a chance on me. And then I went and I was doing community work, by the way, junior achievement in a, in a session teaching kids about financial planning. They teamed me up with another great leader, Janice Knight at Canadian Western Bank. And she approached me afterwards saying, hey, I, I think you'd be interested in, in our position. And I looked at the profile. I said, I don't meet any of these. I don't have 10 years of experience. I don't have my designation, so on and so forth. And here's her word. She said, well, it's just a matter of time you will get it. Hmm. So I think why am I emphasizing leaders is because they're the reason why I'm here. Mm. If they didn't see my potential, I could be the best leadership practice guru by gaining technical skills. But if somebody doesn't open the door to give me a chance to prove it or to apply it, what good is a leadership practice? Now, people took a chance on you, Hyder, and you're here today. I think one thing we need to point out as well is that people won't take a chance on someone who they don't see any potential in, right? I think that is very important. And for those listening, you know, newcomers to this country, how do they position themselves, you know, in a place where people can see them and say, hey, I think there's potential here and I want to take a chance on them? What a great question you asked. I would encourage anyone that's listening to this, uh, if you're a newcomer, even if you're not a newcomer, yep. you think you're undervalued right now. Use the concept of reverse engineering. Basically, look up people that you want to be in the future or your own vision of yourself. Uh, use the power of LinkedIn to look up those folks and then see what qualifications they have. See what volunteer opportunities they're involved in. Mm. Try to model those. And I think the most underrated leadership development tool out there is the civil society, which is basically nonprofits and volunteerism. Mm. Because today you can be a chair of a board in a voluntary sector, managing a paid CEO. Today you can do that. Wow! And uh, there are there's five thousand plus nonprofits in the city that are looking for excellent leadership uh, from our community, and there you can learn from managing up, across, and down. 360 leadership. Mm. And the other reason why I think people could explore that really helped me personally is joining Toastmasters, okay. which is a public speaking organization that has thousands of clubs all across the world. But the main practice there is to, to, to see what, what's, what's your story and how do you articulate your story? Mm. And the friends and mentors that I met there are just amazing. Rotary. Rotary clubs, uh, where the motto is service above self, mm. you get together in Rotary clubs and you give back to society. How amazing is that? 
literally three out of my four or five jobs were through referrals from Rotarians. And I'll end that by saying the power of mentorship. Find a mentor who you look up to. And somebody asked me that recently when I actually won the, the financial award. Okay. A lot of people were shocked. And I was shocked too. I said, I can't believe it because I just spent you know, a few years here. The reason why I got that award is because of my mentor, Jason Pereira. Now, he doesn't think that he's a mentor because he's humble. But he had won this award multiple times. The joke in the financial community is he's a, he's a Globe and Mail columnist on financial planning, the authority. Okay. He's got a double-sided business card. He could have one because of all the designations that he holds. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I reached out to Jason. And here's my personal example of, of how I sought his mentorship. And I said to him, hi, Jason, you won this award. I want to be you. I want to get this award. I want to polish up my practice. Do you have some time? And he sent me a calendar request. He said, 15 minutes per quarter. Let's get it done. Mm. In fact, the, the year I won the award, he jokingly said to me that he said, I also sent in my application and you beat me. <laughs> <laughs> so he did a fantastic job. He did a fantastic job. And, you know, when I talked about the award, like, you know, people again, they will say, well, that's not, it wasn't your work. Jason was helping you. Of course he was. Yes. That's the point. Uh, that's the whole point. Because the thing is, he's unleashing your potential. That's right. Mentorship has to be targeted. Yes. You had something you were chasing, you something you wanted to achieve, and you found someone who's done it before and you approach them and say, hey, could you help me go through this journey that you have gone through? Exactly. Right? It has to be intentional. It has to be targeted. Right? Exactly. You, you make a really good point. Some newcomers may want to have the same results, but they may communicate that, hi, I need a job. Mm. That's not mentorship. That's basically asking for a favor. Yeah. And in my humble opinion, you are, you're more than just a favor because you have so many great things inside of you waiting to be discovered. So meet people eye to eye and let them find out the greatness in you. And as, as we talked about, uh, civil society leadership is another avenue that could be pursued. Power of mentors, because mentors will give you clarity. A mm. true mentor will call you out when you're offside. I've been called out multiple times, continue to do so on a daily basis mm. Mm. but uh, no shame in that it's a continuous growing and learning development opportunity it's learning absolutely absolutely now let's get to something even more interesting we've been going through very many interesting um, topics here and this is how you got the top job at uh, immigrant services calgary you were not even applying for that job either you were making referrals for that job. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So just like you, you're taking bold leadership to make a difference for newcomers at a scale that has never been seen before. And you're doing a marvelous job. And I applaud you for that. Thank you. I wanted to pay it forward as well when I got some of these leadership positions, because now I was in the power to make a difference. So I was mentoring a lot of newcomers and people will look at me as a minority leader in uh, in finance, especially in wealth management. And they just wanted to share some best practices and, and uh, reciprocity, and we did that. So when the call came, I was surprised because uh, headhunters have a really get, great way of sales, by the way, because uh, they'll <laughs> ask you, um, you know, sort of leading questions. You know, is there someone that you know that could be a good fit for this job? 
So that's how the email came. And I spoke to the recruiter. I said, actually, I do know a few top leaders in the city. Because at that point, I was heavily involved in Rotary, Big Brother, Big Sister, Junior Achievement, you know, Immigrant Services Calgary, uh, other settlement agencies as well. Mm. So I gave the list of leaders to this recruiter. I said, all the best, by the way. And, you know, I wish you all the best. Let me know if I can be a service. She called me back and she said, you know, the board is looking for someone unique. And why don't you just put your name in the hat? Oh, wow. And I, I, I remember I was, I was walking outside and I started chuckling. I said, have you looked at my profile? <laughs> I'm your complete opposite. I mean, I've got wealth designations. I'm in sales. I'm, but she said, but you've created a nonprofit in Uganda, haven't you? Mm. I said, yeah, but I, but you know, you kind of discount things in your life. Yes. Well, I've done that. Anyone could, could do that. Right. You, you kind of go through an imposter syndrome sometimes. Yeah. So she told me to put the name in the hat. Long story short, I told my wife about it. She said, you know, this is your, your thing. You like to add value and just go and go to the board and just give them your typical SWOT analysis that you normally do in strategy <laughs> sessions. <laughs> because, uh, you know, I'm, I can't help but not think about the future. That's how I'm wired. Mm. And I can't not think about people's potential and, and also like tactics on reverse engineering the vision. Yeah. That's sort of my specialty. It became a specialty. I didn't realize that because of all the leaders that took a chance on me mm. in some messy portfolios and startup kind of environments. Um, so I can organize systems and create systems and processes so that we can take them to the next level. Anyway, I went to the board the last meeting with my SWOT analysis. <laughs> and I remember they asked me a question about what kind of, I think, leadership is required. And I was giving them, this is what I said to them. I said, look, you don't need a leader that looks like me or a newcomer even, in fact. But you could use a leader that has, you know, innovation mindset, who's bold and, and all these things because a, a, a drastic turnaround is needed if you want to achieve the goal that you have. Okay. And uh, so if you think about it from a marketing perspective, basically you're, I was doing the opposite of that, unmarketing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> were you trying to get the job or not? <laughs> and in fact, just like how you drew out some stories out of me today, my parents' story came out in that moment as well. And the other time it's come out is in, in, in the Deloitte forum. Um, but, but usually, I don't know, for whatever circumstances, it's just been a sacred story. Maybe I should talk about it more. But um, in the in the session, I felt so good about it. I, I remember I called my wife. I said, I think I think they like my plan. I, I think they're going to find some a really good CEO to go to the next steps. So I was in my office now and uh, in First Calgary Financial and QTrade. I was the head of wealth for QTrade and QTrade was now merging into another organization. Okay. So there's a transition happening. I was transitioning into the First Calgary environment. And I was really passionate about that. I was passionate about financial planning. Mm. Planning is my, is my game because I said every single Calgarian deserves a financial plan, right? So that was the vision there. Okay. So I got a call from the recruiter in the evening and I picked up the phone and she said, Hyder, they want to proceed towards next steps. <laughs> but, oh, that's odd. Uh, maybe they want to have another follow-up session on the SWOT analysis I prepared for them. Um, I said, what next steps? Do you want me to meet, uh, meet again? I, I can certainly go through it. I really enjoyed meeting them. And then she says to me, Hutter, you're the CEO. And I think the phone just dropped from my hand. It was a very really dramatic moment. 
And I picked up the phone. I was fumbling with the phone. I said, excuse me, did you just say that they chose me as CEO? <laughs> she said, yeah. And I said, you got to be kidding me. This is my, my response to her. I said, you got to be kidding me. I told them the truth. Wow. And, and she said, maybe they like that. So you're, you're it. Let me fast forward. Um, rotary contacts that I mentioned. Yep. The Toastmaster, con- those are my mentors that I called right away. Lou Mulligan in Milton, Ontario, retired leader in wealth management, spent his early life in Phillips, and um, I met him through Toastmasters. Mm. Called Lou up and he said to me, he said, five years from now, what are you, gonna, what are you going to be doing? And I said, probably the same thing in finance. I'm head of wealth right now, probably <laughs> yeah. doing the same thing. Maybe, maybe one level up in a credit union, probably a CEO or CEO type of role. And, and I would get calls on that, by the way, sometimes uh, from other cities. Um, and he said, well, when you're there five years from now, you look back to this moment, would you regret not transforming the newcomer journey that you experienced and some, some of your mentees? Have experienced what a question and he just blew me out of the water so thank you lou and um he was a big part on the decision uh, for me to move my of course my family and then the board chair shirley phillips i'm going to attach the same theme again remember it's all about people versus the technical leadership mm. so shirley phillips is a tireless volunteer in alberta multiple time ceo in different nonprofits. retired she wants to give back and she's the reason why I also said yes, because she was committed to the transformation and, and supported the bold vision that we had, which is now called the Gateway Project, which is the onboarding. We want to take onboarding of newcomers. Right now, only 30% of newcomers seek services mm. like us. We want to increase that to 80 or 90% through digital platforms, apps, technology use, and client centricity. Wow. Wow. You know, that's a great segue to the next area I want us to talk about because we're getting very close to, to the end of the conversation. Sure. And that's some of the things you're doing and not just the things you're doing and how your journey, you know, has informed how you're leading immigrant services Calgary to today and how some of the things you're putting into place, the gateway, how has your journey as an immigrant in 1999 landing here in Canada? And I'm sure you sought some services when you got here and probably you didn't have many at the time. How has all that experience shaped how you're running Immigrant Services Calgary today? Thank you for that. Because I was so busy working, didn't have time to seek services, didn't even know that this industry existed until... I started volunteering in, in Calgary. Okay. That's when one of my mentees was a newcomer who said to me, uh, actually, you should probably speak to some of these settlement agencies. And I asked her, like, what is that? What does that mean, settlement agency? <laughs> so I didn't know. This is, again, 2013 we were talking about. Oh, wow. Not too long ago. So, that's right. So I guess the, the quickest answer I can give you is that I feel like my past 15 years, all the roles that I've done, Starting with credit counselor, which taught me how to deal with situations where people were the most distressed, the most vulnerable, when their dignity was zero, and how do you ensure you restore dignity while achieving outcomes and results for them? Mm. I think it goes back to that. Uh, it goes back to when we, my wife and I created the Full Soul, which is a nonprofit in Eastern Africa mm. to install medical maternal kits because the Maternal death rate was really high uh, when, when my wife was there doing an internship. 
And we just had to do something back to the community that is, that had given us so much love and acceptance. Mm. So that experience came in handy. Rotary came in handy, Toastmasters, all the mentors. And I felt like I was preparing for this role. Beautiful. Soon as I landed in 1999, the prayer that I had, I remember the one-liner. I said, I want to create massive change within myself and others around me. Beautiful. And today, and today Gateway, I hope, humbly hope that it is creating that change and does create the impact that uh, we want to see. And I'm so proud of my teammates as well. My heroes, as I call them at Immigrant Services Calgary, without them, we wouldn't be here. We've got a remarkable leadership team. We've got uh, trailblazers. And these are not traditional you know, uh, trailblazers. They're from different industries, by the way. Mm. I've got a director, Jillian McDonald. She's a nurse turned MBA. I've got Casey, Casey Kennedy, who's worked internationally, studied politics, speaks two languages. I've got Jeff Coldry, who's a tech guru from, from England. Wow. My, my EA, Camille, is a, is a force to be reckoned with. She's from the Caribbean. Wow. I'm settled in Montreal, then came here. And my administrative assistant, Febby, she's from an Indonesian background. Beauty. Newcomer. And uh, I've got Kola, who's my director of finance from Nigeria, who's worked in oil and gas and now has found his home. Stephanie Udo, Beauty. who just came here, had a third kid, by the way, without her husband. And we we're so lucky to have her as a manager of finance. So the reason why I'm mentioning, again, the people theme is, yes, Gateway, we will get it done. We are humble about it. It's an iterative process. It belongs to the community. 22 plus agencies are now involved in that. Hmm. And we listen to them. We listen to their feedback and inform how we can actually standardize these processes so that one day when newcomers are getting the notification, and I don't know if you remember the day you go out your letter, the PR letter, yeah. if it came physically in the mail or email, I don't know how it works today in these days. Physically in the mail. Oh, physically in the mail. Yes. Okay, same process in 1999. <laughs> Imagine Next time a family member or new future newcomer gets that mail, they'll get an app notification to download the Welcome to Alberta app if they're coming to Calgary. Wow. And they'll do the planning right there. It starts right there because we know we have one year. The time clock is ticking. And yes, economic immigrants and everyone can Google their way. They have friend networks here. Absolutely. Utilize those networks. But how can we make a difference by unleashing potential faster? Mm. By the time you get to the airport, you know where you're going to be living. You know where your job is going to be. You know where your friends are going to be. And that's the, that's the bold vision that my team is pursuing along with my board of directors. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, and just hearing you, you know, talk about some of the statistics from you know, the gateway, some of the impact it's having already, you know, my mind is blown on what you guys are achieving at Immigrant Services Calgary. It's amazing. We're getting very close to the end of this conversation. You've dropped so many, you know, great tips for people as we spoke. But I want you to, you know, three things you 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 have taken on, on through your journey, and you want people to pay very close attention to these things as they go through their journey. What what will those be? That's a really good question. R cube is what I would like your listeners to absorb. R cube made a difference in my life. The three R's. Okay. And when you multiply them, you get magnified, multiplied impact, infinity loop. Okay. The first R is relationships. 
as I explained, I wouldn't be here in front of you if it weren't for the leaders that took a chance on me. And at the same time, the leaders who called me out on my weaknesses so that I can improve my leadership practice. So I'm grateful to all leaders that have come into my life. Second one is reciprocity. Mm. And this is a rule we follow in our team meetings as well, where if your ego gets involved, and let's say you're coming in from point A, I am coming in from point B, the result should be a point C, not me trying to convince A or you're trying to convince B mm. or mesh A and B. Because sometimes you walk away from a room and we say, okay, you know what? I will learn to disagree and go on. Well, that's not point C. How about we said to each other, we have both drawn from this conversation and we've achieved a new point, which belongs to the both of us. So that's, it's very really difficult to achieve. But once you achieve those point C moments of reciprocity, uh, that goes uh, kudos to our prophet, University of Waterloo, Dr. Kenneth Westews, who taught us the value of that. And the last one is return on social investment. Mm. Don't forget to give back to the community that carried you through, the people that took a chance on you. Because yes, you're right. You focused on your own technical skills and you own that. But what you're experiencing is a direct result of somebody saying yes to your job application mm -hmm. to get you on a payroll. Or in a, if you're an entrepreneur, an investor who said, yes, I'm going to invest in you. Wow. And so I think uh, the three R's, relationships, invest in those, um, the reciprocity principle and return on social investment. And I can guarantee you that you will get 10 times or even 20 times the return of what you put out there. Thank you so much, Haider. That is profound. And Thank you again, right, for taking this time to, to be here. I know how busy, I know you're a humble man. You would say everyone is busy, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, thank you very much for, for taking the time to, to be on, on the podcast and sharing your story. I, the, the, the way your story impacted me in 2019 when I heard it, I, I know it will resonate with a lot of our listeners today. So thank you very much for taking the time, Hyder. No worries at all. And I did want to close the loop on my grandpa's story, which I discovered talking about humble. Okay. Uh, that I closed the loop in Calgary really quickly. So I was speaking to one of the parliamentary secretaries um, in the provincial government. His name is uh, uh, the Honorable Mohammed Yassim. And we ended up talking about my grandpa. Just, I just felt like sharing that story with him. And he said, um, he sent me a, a text message with my grandpa's picture. He said, is this your grandpa? I said, you got to be kidding me. You met? He's like, yeah, yeah, he came here on a mission like a few decades ago um, to do, provide some leadership to all of us. And I remember meeting him. Wow. My grandpa never told anyone about that story. And that's what I'm, I think I want to end off on is that um, we have a temporary spot in a position title. For example, I'm here for a temporary um, spot as a CEO. And I, I, and we want to do the best we can in this temporary kind of position title. And he would always say, what are you going to do the, to the chair that you're sitting on? Hmm. Are you going to do justice to the chair? Hmm. So, so thank you again to you because uh, you kind of made me think about the philosophical reasons. I wasn't expecting a conversation to go into the philosophy and, and family dynamics, but, uh, but thank you again for drawing that out of me today. It's been really inspirational. Thank you very much, Haider. Appreciate it. And that concludes today's show. I hope you found my conversation with Haider to be revealing, deep, and insightful. 
I encourage you to share this show with your friends, family, and anyone you think might benefit from the conversations we have on this show. Until next time, I am your host, Stanley Opar. Be well.